Welcome to episode 341 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker, author of What, When, Wine, and creator of the supplement line Avalon X. And I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Spina, sports nutrition specialist, author of Keto Essentials, and creator of the Tone Breath Ketone Analyzer and Tone Lux Red Light Therapy Panels. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and ketogenicgirl.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment. To be featured on the show, email us your questions to questions at ifpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. So pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration and electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right. You can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. 
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. This is episode 341, and I'm Melanie Avalon. And I am here today with a very special guest. I have been looking forward to this friends for so long. So something that we talk about all the time on this show, like all the time is CGMs also known as, well, continuous glucose monitors, also known as CGMs, which are devices that you put on your body and they give you a picture of your blood sugar levels measured through interstitial fluid, which I'm sure we'll talk about 
essentially 24-7 for a two-week period when you're doing a program. And me and honestly, all of the co-hosts that we've had on this show, Jen, Cynthia, and now Vanessa, we are all huge fans of CGMs. We've worn them multiple times. And that's just because it's really one of the only ways to get an actual picture of how your food is literally affecting you in that moment, how your fasting is affecting you, your exercise. It's just so incredibly eye-opening. And so we've partnered for quite a while now, my favorite brand in the continuous glucose monitor space to make them accessible to people like us, because historically you needed to be diabetic and have a prescription from your doctor, is a company called Nutrisense, and we love Nutrisense. So they provide access to CGMs. You get the CGM, you get the CGM, the app, the Nutrisense app. It helps you interpret your data, and it's just really an easy process, an eye-opening process. I am obsessed with it. So I knew we had to have the co-founder on this show. I've had her on the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast twice, actually. So I will put links to that in the show notes. But I have her here now with me. And I also had gathered a cacophony of listener questions from you guys. You had so many questions, so we're going to go through those. But I am here with Kara Collier, again, like I said, the co-founder of Nutrisense, and she is now the VP of Health at the company, and she is awesome. So Kara, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to chat. So I am too. I've been looking forward to this for so long, especially because, like I said, we haven't had like a full discussion about CGMs on this show. And when I asked for questions, I got really excited because I got so many and some of them, a few of them I had never occurred to me, which was I'm really excited to ask those. So to start things off, your personal story, what led you to co-founding Nutrisense? Yeah. So I first tried a CGM probably about three or four three years before founding Nutrisense. So at this point, maybe like probably eight years ago, kind of where I started, I'm a dietitian by trade and I started in a kind of a traditional clinical nutrition world. So I was working in hospitals with pretty sick patients, mostly ICUs. So I was seeing a lot of people come in with complications of diabetes, complications of uncontrolled heart disease, you know, complications of uncontrolled kidney disease. And what you see in the ICU is a lot of suffering, pain, time spent, expenses, all of this happening that you realize really didn't ever need to happen in the first place. So I was trying to make a difference in people's lives. I was trying to help them with lifestyle changes, with nutrition, with counseling, and it was the wrong time and place to be really intervening in the way that I wanted to. So eventually I went to a different startup, but was really kind of mulling on this problem that I felt like I was seeing in the clinical world. And at that point, I had worked with patients who wore CGMs, primarily type 1 diabetics and type 2, occasionally a type 2 diabetic. And I realized how powerful they were for that audience, but I started to get really curious about trying them both on myself and others. So I got a hand on a couple, which as you mentioned, is was very hard to do at the time. Took me kind of convincing some of my physician friends to get them. And I realized even being like really nerdy in the metabolic health and nutrition world and having learned a lot about the topic, when I wore one, I learned so much about myself that you just can't know without the data. 
that was my first moment where I was like, oh, wow, these are powerful tools and not just for managing your diabetes. So then I started putting them on kind of like my friends, my family to see what their experiences were like. And I found it was powerful for almost any type of situation that person was in. And that's when I got really excited about the technology and I realized how difficult it was to get them. And then also the app that comes with the device normally is is pretty useless. It basically just tells you your glucose value and it's meant for your physician to look at it and kind of dose your insulin accordingly. So I realized for this to be useful for consumers, you needed a completely different app experience. So from there, I actually just kind of stumbled upon through friends of friends, my two other co-founders, both of which come from, you know, a technical background and a finance background. And they were looking for somebody who had the nutrition subject matter expertise, and they had a very similar thesis for the business. And we just, you know, totally meshed and got along really well. We had the same values for how we wanted to create a business. And we just started doing it and going for it. And then suddenly we had customers and suddenly we had more customers. And then we were like, should we quit our day job? So I really just took off. And that was a a little over, that was about four and a half years ago now. I'm having to stop myself because I would love to have just a two hour conversation about like the entrepreneur aspect of this and like product development and creating the app, but I will, I will not go down that, that route. Wow. So incredible. I'm just curious, like the first time you, you got it from your doctor, we actually had a question about talking with doctors about CGMs. So I'll just make a really quick two-part question. Arietta asked, she said, my doctor said a CGM would just confuse me. How do I make an appeal to her? My little random question is when you did first get your CGM, did you have a practitioner that like listened to you and, and, you know, was open to prescribing it or how did you do that? And then what would you say to Arietta's question about doctors just being a little bit skeptical about CGMs? So for me, my situation was probably a little unusual and it might not be as helpful for everyone else. Since I worked in the healthcare setting, I, you know, I had a, you know, friends in the hospital system. So they weren't my you know, my doctor specifically, but they were willing to just give it to me as colleagues, essentially. So if you have an in in the healthcare world, that's one route. But if you're trying to convince your doctor, I get this question a lot and it's very difficult. And this is part of the reason we created the company. <laughs> so obviously a small plug for NutriSense will take care of this problem for you. But if you really want to go through your doctor, because you might be able to get you know a cheaper sensor that way, which I totally understand, I'd rather have everybody wearing it in some way than using NutriSense necessarily. One point to explain is that there's a lot of research and information out there now. So you could even use the blogs and the content on NutriSense's website, other websites, these podcasts to try to make sense of the data. That's part of kind of what we try to do in our app for you. But if you aren't using our app, you will have to do a little bit of learning on your own. But many people are completely capable of doing that. But the other thing to help educate your physician is that awareness is really the first step to health. You know, we don't know what we don't know and we need the right tools and information in order to understand if we're where we think we are. And, you know, we can kind of dig into the traditional glucose metrics if you'd like, but they only tell us a little bit. So there's a lot of research out there showing how the first signs of 
glucose dysregulation or deviation typically happens in that post-meal period. So that postprandial glucose response, so our glucose spikes, how we respond to meals, the fluctuations throughout the day, what's called glycemic variability, which is those swings in our glucose. And there's a lot of research to indicate that those two things, which you can only understand if you're measuring it 24-7 through a CGM, are much earlier warning signs of insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction. And so if you can understand what's happening with those data points, you can make sure you're in really good metabolic health before you ever even get to deviations in the more traditional metrics. So from a preventative lens, it's really the route to go. And it also really helps drive behavior change, which we can dig a lot more into. But Data is powerful, especially real-time data. So even just the benefit of something like, you know, a step tracker, like, you know, we have our Apple Watch or our Garmin's or our Aura Rings, these really help us stay accountable to the things that we might know already, which is maybe I should walk more or I should do some mindfulness practice. But having that data that comes back at you in real time helps you stay accountable. And that's another powerful reason for the CGM alone is to really help you be able to make the behavior changes that you know you might need to do that you might struggle doing. I love that so much. And that's something, it's something that's so hard to communicate until you experience it. But the level of accountability that I think it can bring to people, because once you finally see it, like in real life, like see this graph of what what you're doing and how it's affecting you, it's just it makes it real to you. Like, I think it makes your food choices and your lifestyle choices real. Like, you understand what's happening. Exactly. It's so different when you have the data. And it just, and even then, when you aren't wearing a CGM anymore and you don't have the data in front of you, having seen it at some point in time really does still drive behavior change in the future. So you don't necessarily have to wear it forever to have that really powerful behavior change impact. So it's pretty incredible. And then of course, you know, there's the aspect that we're all different. We have different unique responses to food, to activities, and we're not all the same exact person. And so there are some things that are just unique to me that nobody else is going to respond in that way. And I don't know that information unless I see the data and I test it out. And so learning those type of just individual bio-individuality really helps you to be empowered to make decisions that are right for you specifically. And speaking to, I love what you just said about how, you know, having seen how you react to things, you remember that in the future, even when you're not wearing a CGM. So what I often say is I really wish that everybody in the world could wear CGM at least just once. Cause like I said, it lasts two weeks, but then beyond that, I know with NutriSense, you guys have a really great subscription program so people can do it longer. Anna or Anna, probably Anna She wanted to know, is a two-week trial period long enough to get a picture of how your body responds to the foods you eat? So that two weeks, what can people realistically get value-wise from that? Yeah. And it's actually, we we recently changed our, our lowest option from that two week to the one month. So you get two sensors. If you're a previous customer and you've had the two week trial from us in the past and you just, you just want one more sensor, we, we will do that happily. But if you're a brand new customer and you've never been with us before, our lowest tier now is one month. So two sensors again. And we primarily did that because we really feel like a month is the 
minimum amount of time to be really helpful. There are exceptions to this for the person who's really knowledgeable. So somebody who maybe like lives and breathes these topics as their primary, you know, day job, you might be able to, you know, have two weeks and you get away with it and you you learn most of what you need to learn. But for a lot of people, a month is really helpful. And you might not even wear them back to back. You know, you might do the one month and have the two sensors and wear one and then wait a couple weeks and then wear the other one. But we think having closer to that 30 days of data is that sweet spot for the minimum amount of information. Because ideally, what you want to do is at least first test your baseline information, right? So like, what are your normal day-to-day habits doing to your data? Because we want to know, it's really interesting when people are like, oh, I want to try my favorite treat that I only have, you know, like once a month. That's fun. (laughs) But what we really want to know is how is your daily routine affecting you? Because that's what's most impactful in your overall health. So we want people to kind of not change anything. And then based on what you're learning, maybe you're seeing that there's, you know, one meal in particular in your regular routine that really is resulting in a high glucose spike. So then you might want to experiment with a couple different variations of that meal until you, until you land on something that's working really well for you. And then maybe, you know, trying some of the more fun things that you don't do necessarily every day. And to, to really get that information and takeaway, I think two sensors is a sweet spot. Before, because there's a lot more questions, but could you briefly explain, because I mentioned this in the intro, so it's not actually measuring your blood. How is it working with measuring the interstitial fluid? Yeah, good question. So the CGM is actually measuring, like you mentioned, what is called your interstitial fluid. And this is part of the reason that the sensors are so painless and you know you really don't notice them. So to answer the question that I know will come to is, does it hurt? <laughs> and it really doesn't. You put the device on at home, so it's not something that you need to get like inserted. It has a small needle for insertion. But what that needle is placing is a little tiny microfilament that's you know flexible, no needle that stays just below the surface of the skin. And what that microfilament is then picking up on is that interstitial, the glucose in your interstitial fluid. And what that is, is essentially the fluid in between your cells. So you're not even going to the depth of your blood vessels, which is why it's really shallow, really painless. And how the interstitial fluid works essentially is just like normal diffusion. So let's say you eat a gummy bear. And that gummy bear gets immediately digested into glucose because it's basically pure sugar. And then it's going to go into your blood glucose first, and then it's going to diffuse into that interstitial fluid. So if we're not eating anything, if our glucose levels are like relatively, you know, slowly shifting, then blood glucose and interstitial values pretty much match exactly. But if you ate something, let's say you ate 50 gummy bears and your glucose spiked really high, really quickly, you will see that reflected in your interstitial fluid, usually like 15 to 30 minutes later. So there's kind of that slight delay with these sharp changes in your glucose, but it is reflected in the same way. It just kind of, you know, needs to be diffused into that space. So actually speaking to that, we had quite a few questions about comparing it to blood glucose and the accuracy. And this was a really interesting question. So from Jill, she wanted to know about the accuracy and she said she was shocked when she researched the allowable variance from a blood draw or a finger prick. And then she said, do factors like inflammation significantly affect accuracy? Since interstitial fluid may be higher in someone with higher inflammation, 
I believe this is the reason they have not been studied in pregnancy. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So just address to address the accuracy broadly, like she's mentioned, so these are FDA-approved medical devices. So there are two main manufacturers who create the CGMs, Dexcom and Libre, and both are FDA-approved. But what the FDA does allow is essentially a 15% variation from what you might get at a lab draw 95% of the time is what FDA deems to be acceptable accuracy. But how this works typically is there's a difference between the precision and then the absolute value. So usually if it is off within that 15%, let's say it's at that high end of what's acceptable. So let's say your CGM readings are reading 15% higher than if you had the equivalent glucose value drawn from like a blood value. And that's different than a finger prick. I'm talking like a lab draw then what happens is it stays pretty consistently 15% higher though. So it's not going to be shifting constantly on the CGM readings. It's the absolute value might be off. So one thing that we do allow in our app is the ability to calibrate each sensor to get it closer to that true absolute value. But the thing that is nice if you don't have a recent lab value to calibrate with is that those changes in glucose are very precise. And so it's still very useful to understand that my fasting glucose is resting 10 points higher than it was yesterday. What did I do differently? Or my glucose shot up 80 points with that meal. You know, what is what was in that meal that I need to change potentially? And then the source of the inaccuracy, I don't, you know, that's an interesting question with pregnancy. The reason from my understanding from the manufacturers that it hasn't been necessarily approved with pregnancy is because there's such large fluid shifts that happen during pregnancy. So it's kind of a fluid balance thing rather than an inflammation thing. I haven't heard that or read that anywhere with the inflammation aspect. Most likely you're going to be having a similar level of inflammation throughout the body that's impacting both levels. But the accuracy issue is more related to kind of like, I guess, the enzymatic reaction that happens within the sensor itself. Sometimes it it can be a little off. But again, it's that change in glucose and that precision that is really useful and stable. You just said like of an enzymatic reaction. Why would it be so stable but off? Yeah, and it's very hard to find the answer to this. So we have tried. So, um, you know, I will say it is hard to find the answer. We have spoken with the manufacturers who make the devices. We have read all of their studies. And what they have done, though, is they've done clinical tests that, you know, you need all of this data to get FDA approval. And that's where we know that the precision is is very good because what they do is they They have people wear it and they do these blood draws over and over throughout the 14 days to make sure that it is more of the absolute value that is off rather than the variation between the values. So we do know know that from the studies that have been done. But the reason why is hard to get a firm, clear answer. What they typically say is that it has to do with placement. So sometimes when people, what we have found anecdotally is that people who are really really lean and have less body fat tend to have more variation from that baseline. And so it might just have to do with kind of the placement and where that microfilament ends up sitting is is my theory. And that's kind of what I meant about the enzymatic reaction that's happening on that little microfilament. If it happens to be, you know, placed a little strangely, it might be slightly more off than others. 
What is interesting for me is I've only had maybe one sensor out of like a hundred that I've ever needed to calibrate. So for some people, it seems to just always be spot on every single time. Whereas for some people, it seems like it's like, oh, every time I need to adjust it by 10. So it seems to almost be like relatively consistent with people, which is another just purely anecdotal observation we've had. I can share my experience because I don't know. I was just thinking how many I've done. I mean, I've probably done maybe like 15 or so rounds. I think I've had to calibrate probably three or four times. Actually, the last time I did it, that was the only time where, because I did have the exact experience that you're saying right now, which is once you calibrate it, then it, because I would, basically what I do is I get the CGM and then you wait, it's it's 72 hours that you're supposed to wait for the the calibration period. Just that first 24. Oh, Oh, just 24. Okay. I thought it was longer. So 24 hours in the beginning where it's, you know, might be off. Oh, which by the way, do you know why that is? What is explained again from the manufacturers is it's self-calibrating during that time. I think a lot of it has to do with just potential damage that has been done with that puncturing, like some of that like minor inflammation that happens with that needle during insertion and maybe even, you know, a little bit of bruising or a little bit of bleeding, like interferes with that at first until it clears out. That was Peter Tia's theory. I heard him saying that on a show and I was like, I wonder if that's okay. That's exciting to hear that. So yeah. So basically what I do is I have that 24 hours where I'm, you know, not, not judging. I have a, a at home, a finger prick and a glucometer and I will check it against that. And I, I typically with the recommendations, maybe you can elaborate on this, but when you're checking it, you want to make sure that you're, you know, still and not eating and not moving around a lot, basically being in that state where, like Kara was saying earlier in the show, where the blood should mostly be matching the interstitial fluid anyways, because there's not that time delay. Right. You want it to be stable. Yeah. Yeah. So I make sure I'm in that state and I check it. I'll see if it's off and then I'll, I'll do that a few times typically that next day and maybe even the next day if I'm a little bit suspicious because because actually before I continue on that train with the glucometers because that's what I wonder I'm like well how do I even know my glucometer is accurate and then Nisha she said she was confused about the difference between her finger prick and her CGM she said sometimes there is a 30 point difference within three minutes when I took 10 blood pricks as an experiment I also read that the finger prick blood draw sugar can vary depending on the finger and the amount of blood, but I'm not certain. So question there, if we are even comparing it to our glucometer at home, how do we know if our glucometer is accurate and like, does the finger matter? And how do we figure that out? Yep. That's the biggest challenge with this is that the glucometers that, you know, you can buy over the counter, you can get online. They also have their own accuracy issues. So they are susceptible to the same, you know, accuracy guidelines. And as she said, you could do an experiment where you can probably prick each of your fingers or same finger multiple times, and you're not going to get the same exact number every time. What I recommend is that people use their latest fasting blood glucose value that they got from a lab draw if it is recent. So again, if it's not recent and you do have a glucometer, you can use that as a general gauge, especially if you think it might be really off. 
and kind of adjust that, but just know that it's not a perfect measure either. So what we don't want people getting kind of too obsessed with is pricking their finger 10 times every day for the whole 14 days and constantly readjusting it because that's just going to drive your stress levels up. And so kind of getting it, adjusting a little if you think it needs to be, and then really paying attention to those trends. And then you can you know, I recommend at a very, very minimum people get labs every year as well. So at least at that annual basis, kind of double checking what your most recent fasting glucose level was as kind of a baseline for that information. Okay. So to clarify about that, you're saying if somebody has a CGM and they're not pricking their finger, they can look at the fasting levels from the CGM compared to a blood test they had a while ago for their fasting blood sugar levels? Yeah. We recommend is if Assuming that what we'll ask our customers when we're talking them through this is if they've had a fasting glucose level from a a lab draw that's in the last six months, if they haven't had major lifestyle changes since, we'll just use that as a general baseline. If it's older than that, or if in that six months you've made major lifestyle changes, you've lost a lot of weight, you've changed your dietary habits, then it's probably not that useful as a baseline but like, for example, I, I just put a sensor on yesterday and I got a lab draw done three weeks ago. So I'm just using that fasted glucose value from that lab draw as kind of my source of truth to adjust if I need to adjust my CGM. But if you don't have that, you can do the finger prick and just keeping in mind that we'll u- we're using that as a general proxy and not as a gold standard. Okay. And would people, if they're doing that, would they probably, especially because a lot of our listeners are intermittent fasters, so they um, might have various eating and fasting windows. I'm assuming if they go that route, they would want to look, well, if it's, yeah, it should be on there. They would want to look at the time of the blood draw and probably compare it similarly to the fasted time on the CGM. Yeah. And just making sure, you know, you should be fasted going into, you know, the, the lab draws. So making sure you're, you're both times you're in a fasted state that it's, you know, a general same time of day. So typically they'll want to do labs more towards the first half of the day because, you know, it's required to be fasting, but so kind of matching that is, is a good best practice. It's so funny. It's just, this is just random. I tend to go into labs. Like I'm always like the last appointment of the day. And I always get the same question. I, I can't tell you how many times they'll be like, oh, we actually can't draw this lab because you have to be fasted. I'm like, I am fasted. <laughs> yeah, that's happened to me too, yeah. <laughs> like they can't fathom it. <laughs> no, no, they'll just like assume that I like ate. I'm like, no, it's fine. You can do it. <laughs> like, um, so I'm curious in your experience, because you said you've done it, you know, like a hundred times or so. The last time I did one, and I don't want to like scare people away from them because like I said, the majority of the time they haven't needed any calibration. And when they did, it was off by like 10 or maybe 20 and then it was fine. The last time I had one, I think it, are there some that are lemons? Basically I adjusted it and it needed to be calibrated for sure. And so I calibrated it. Then I think it went back to being accurate without calibration. So then it was like way off. I kind of gave up on it like two thirds of the way through. I was like, (laughs) so does that happen with people ever? Yeah. And what we see typically, and this is similar from what the manufacturer's data is as well, is about 2% of sensors are just like lemons, like you said. And in those instances, if you reach out to us, we'll replace them for free because we do know just like every once in a while for whatever reason, bad sensor. Sometimes it'll just like not read at all or sometimes it looks really wacky. And again, it tends to be about 2% of the sensors and we'll replace them happily. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I think for mine in the beginning, it was 
way high. So I had to really adjust it lower, but then I think it got back to normal. So then it said I was basically dying from hypoglycemia. So I was like, I I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. In those instances, we would replace that sensor for sure. Awesome. Okay. That's great to know. Linda wants to know, she says, I have another two weeks with a second CGM waiting because I have a salt water pool and it says you can't go in salt. So I couldn't swim for two weeks plus I'm going to the ocean. So now I will probably purchase in the fall or winter, not the summer. So is that is that a concern, the salt water? Typically, we recommend not being emerged in it for more than 30 minutes at a time as just a best practice. But what we have found is, you know, there's always people who are like, nah, I'm not going to follow that rule. <laughs> and when they cover it with the bandage that comes with it, most people are okay because we do have people who do like the, you know, open ocean swimming, open water swimming in some of the salt water and they'll do it for longer than 30 minutes. And nine times out of 10, the sensor is fine, but it, you are putting at a slightly higher risk of just like getting waterlogged and malfunctioning. So the official recommendation is, is to not be submerged for more than 30 minutes at a time. Okay, awesome. And then this is one I think I asked you about before. I am still perplexed by this because it seems that, oh, although I had a theory about it, which I will ask you, but whole body cryotherapy. Debbie wants to know when doing whole body cryotherapy, is it okay to be wearing a CGM in the chamber? And I know what I see when I wear it is that it spikes way high when I'm in the chain, like way high. <laughs> and, then I, and then I get out and then it progressively goes lower throughout the day. And I was always wondering if it was just the cold freaking it out or if it was a massive dump of liver glycogen, but I'm guessing it's just the cold. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, most likely it's just the cold. And so you can wear it in both, you know, any type of cold therapy, but also any type of heat therapy. So sauna, you can wear the sensors and it's not going to break it, but you might get that extreme response in the moment because there is just like a normal operating temperature for the sensors that probably when the manufacturers made this, they weren't expecting people to be in extreme temperatures. But so in those instances, it might just have that higher response. And what we know from research in cold therapy is that usually you're not having that huge glucose response in reality. Typically, actually cold exposure will, will drop your glucose levels, which is usually what people see once they get out of the actual temperature exposure and the sensor kind of is is back in normal temperatures, you'll start to see that glucose drop like you said you saw. But with sauna, actually, we do know that we individuals have a higher glucose response in reality during the actual sauna exposure. So it's not just that the sensor is reacting to those high temperatures, but it's also that glucose tends to rise in that moment. But again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. This usually has to do with the fact that it's kind of like exercise. So, you know, your body is working harder, especially in a sauna, and that's causing the glucose to go up a little bit. And it's also a lot of to do with that fluid distribution. So part of it can be a little bit of acute dehydration that's happening. But just like exercise, when we see glucose rise during exercise, we see glucose values lower overall after the sauna and kind of that long-term benefit of sauna use is lower glucose values overall. Awesome. Okay. And yeah, the realization I had related to it. So the device itself, is it gathering information every every five minutes that it's actually taking a reading? Yep. Every five minutes. Correct. Yeah. Okay. The moment I had where I was like, oh, this is definitely the cold, not, not a moment is it would only happen if that, because the session is three minutes. So sometimes the session 
that reading check would not happen during the cryotherapy. And in that case, I didn't see any spike on the, you know, on my readings. So that's when I was like, okay, so it's definitely has to be definitely the cold since there's like no residual stuff going on there. Oh, and just a comment before I forget on the whether or not it's painful. It's funny. So I have a lot of videos. People can check out my Instagram, a lot of videos of putting on CGMs and how to put them on. I think it's one of the things that is the biggest difference between how it looks like it's going to feel versus how it feels. Like it looks very scary. It's a little intimidating. Yeah. Your first time you do it, it's a little intimidating. Like the needle looks really scary, but it's just so funny. I think it's funny how, because I have a, a video with my friend and I putting them on and like her reaction because you you don't even, you literally don't even feel it. So it's funny to see people's reactions about because they're anticipating it being painful, but it's really not. Yeah, they're like wincing and then it happens and then they're like, oh, like, yeah, you know, the reactions are great. Also speaking of the placement, so can you explain exactly where to put it? We got a lot of questions about that. So Jill wanted to know where to put it on her body. Allison wanted to know, is it possible to wear a CGM on another area of the body? She says she has lymphedema in both arms and she wants to avoid uh, potentially introducing an infection. And then Nancy said that she wears hers on her abdomen. So placement. Yeah. So, you know, again, there's the two manufacturers. We are starting to integrate with both, but we primarily use Abbott Libre. And with the Libre, they have only clinically tested and approved for it to be on the back of the arm. So either arm. And that's just the placement that they have done all of their clinical studies on, you know, all of their accuracy data is with that placement. So that is the only recommendation for the Libre, where the Dexcom has been clinically tested on both the back of the arm and the abdomen. So those are approved for both of those use cases. But again, not everybody listens to the official rules. And we have seen people put it all over. So we've seen people put on their abdomen, you know, their thighs, their butts, they put it, you know, in different places. And it, it, Typically, 99% of the time works okay, but it is not an official recommendation on our end. So if the sensor malfunctions and it's in, in you know, a, a weird spot, that's kind of a, a risk you take. But the official recommendation for the standard sensor we use, the Libre, is the back of the arm. And is it the fattiest part of the back of your arm? Yeah, that's what we recommend. Mm -hmm. I would be interested putting it on, like, your thought. Like, if you're putting on a really, a much more fattier area, I just find it interesting that do people see a bigger lag time? It Typically, people see like it looks about the same. You know, our sample size of people putting it in strange places is much smaller than the, with the arms. So it's a little bit hard to tell. But we haven't seen anything that's been like a noticeable difference for those who are kind of deviating there. So right now, are you using both versions or just the freestyle? Not yet, but we are currently working on the integration to be able to offer both, you know, Dexcom and Libre. And then one thing that will be coming soon is that we'll be having a membership plan. So if you have your own sensors, you can just have like a, you know, one-time annual fee to use our app and access to our dietitians and bring your own sensor. And so that is part of the reason we want to be integrated with all the different sensors out there is to give people that flexibility in case maybe you did get the sensors yourself, but you want, you know, the better app experience and what comes with the sensor. We're, we're working towards providing those various flexible options for people to use it. My hesitancy with the non-freestyle Libre options, I don't know when they introduced this, but I'm, I'm concerned about EMF exposure. And so the Bluetooth aspect, 
When was that a non-negotiable with the Dexcom? Which version do you know? I can't remember when they switched, but it's been a while. It's been at least two generations of Dexcom sensors are Bluetooth. Yeah. So I wish they would have an airplane mode. (laughs) I'm just like putting it out there. I'm just putting it out there. So I've been, yeah, that's why I've been definitely preferentially at present choosing the Freestyle Libra. I'm like waiting with beta breath. I'm like, don't switch to Bluetooth with like mandatory only Bluetooth. Yeah. I, yeah, I will say that the version of Libre that has been released in Europe, but not the US is a Bluetooth version. I just, yeah, it's, it seems to be the trend, but we'll see what happens in the US. It's much different ground, like, you know, playing field here. So this will speak to how much I believe in CGMs. All of that said, because listeners know how intense I am about EMFs. I'm actually launching an EMF blocking product line. Like it's so important to me. That said, if the only option was Bluetooth only, I still think everybody should do at least one round of it. So that friends, that is how important. That is how like amazing and life-changing I think CGMs are. Hi, friends. Now, I know most of you are familiar with the power of protein to help us to recompose our bodies, get fitter and leaner by losing body fat and protecting and gaining muscle or lean body mass. Now, protein supplementation is one of the best ways to do it. It is scientifically validated to help us produce high quality weight loss. Now, when it comes to weight loss, traditionally, a lot of people will do high carb, low calorie diets, and those have been shown to generate upwards of 40% lean body mass loss. Now, protecting your lean body mass and your muscle is crucial when you are wanting to lose some fat because during weight loss, you don't want the weight lost to be coming from your muscle. The more muscle you're able to retain, the more you're metabolically active tissue, which is going to keep your metabolic rate much higher and help you maintain the fat loss after you have achieved it. Now, one of the best ways, as I said, to do this is through using protein shakes. I've been on the lookout for years to find a high quality protein supplement that does not have fillers, dyes, artificial sweeteners, and using cheap protein concentrate, which can cause all kinds of issues like bloating and indigestion. I finally created a protein supplement that meets my standards, and it's something that I personally use every single day, and that is Tone Protein. Tone Protein not only is extremely clean and high quality with only whey protein isolate, no concentrates, no fillers. It is also scientifically formulated to optimize muscle protein synthesis, which is going to help you build lean body mass and muscle in the most efficient way possible. I am so incredibly excited about Tone Protein. Not only is it extremely high quality and optimized to help you recompose your body. It is also absolutely delicious. We've been having so much fun with all the different flavors that we are creating, and I just can't wait for you all to try it. Now, I wanted to create a special launch discount for all of you listeners so that you could check it out, try it out, see how you like it, and test it out for yourself. In order to receive that launch discount, you can head over to toneprotein.com and sign up with your 
name and email address and you'll receive an email to double opt in to the list and you will be the first to know when Tone Protein is available to order and you will also receive that exclusive launch discount. It is going to be the biggest discount that we ever offer on Tone Protein. So I really want all of you to be able to receive it. So be sure to go to toneprotein.com, sign up with your name and email and you'll be double opted in to that list. And I am so excited for you all to try it out. Let me know what you think of it and let it help you to optimize your body recomposition goals, get that fat loss and maintain and protect your lean body mass while doing it. So one other question about numbers that might be a little bit off when you're sleeping. I know people sometimes experience issues. So Maureen said that she gets low level alarms going off in the middle of the night when she knows her glucose is not dangerously low. Is there anything she can do about that? Yes, that is, well, first I will say the alarms are one, uh, what I would consider a very annoying feature of associated only with Bluetooth and Dexcom. So there will be no annoying alarms with the Libre's and the NutriSense experience. But what does happen sometimes is that if people are putting a lot of pressure while they're sleeping on the sensor, it can cause your glucose levels from the CGM readings to artificially dip really low. And the reason you'll know if this is real or not is if it's a really sharp dip, like let's say your glucose levels were like floating pretty stably at 70, and then you see this sharp dip for just like one or two readings to like 30 and then back up to 70, it was probably you just laying on it funky where some people really truly do have nocturnal hypoglycemia, but the pattern looks a lot different. You know, you'll see a more smooth dip that stays a little longer and almost always nine times out of, out of 10, if somebody's having nocturnal hypoglycemia, it's associated with symptoms. So during that hypoglycemic moment, they are sweating, they're waking up, you know, they're, they're having that hypoglycemic symptoms. Sometimes people will have nightmares. Typically, if it's that just like sharp, really quick dip and you didn't wake up at all, you slept like a baby, it's probably just sensor pressure that's causing that dip. Okay. Awesome. I definitely experienced the pressure experience with mine. And we tend to see that really lean people see that more. So that makes sense. Okay. Gotcha. And side sleeper here, I'm actually doing a, I'm doing an episode in the next few months with a guest who hopefully will convince me to start sleeping on my back, but it's so hard though. <laughs> no, I still have like his neck, his like, I think it's called like the neck nest or something. It's a pillow to make you sleep straight. I, I haven't even started doing it yet, but we'll see. Okay. So as far as actually interpreting the data, we got a lot of really, really great questions about this. Where to start? So just a really simple question. Jill wants to know what is the optimal 24-hour average glucose? Great question. So with average glucose, we recommend as an optimal to be at least at a minimum below 105 milligrams per deciliter. So that's really that upper threshold. We really want people to be below it, which equates, if you're thinking about things in terms of a hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of that, you know, that blood metric that captures your average glucose over the last three months, that is a 5.3%. Whereas, you know, normal for A1C levels 
for the, you know, official recommendations out there in the medical world are anything under 5.7, which would equal to 117 average glucose, which we believe is too high. So really keeping it below 105. Okay. Awesome. And that leads to the, I said earlier, there are some questions that never occurred to me. Uh, I love this question. This has never occurred to me to ask. So this is from Benoit. Ben Watt, hope I'm saying that correctly. He says, assuming I wore one for three months, would that mean I can calculate my HbA1c or get a good correlation? It does. Yes, it's a great question. Um, and we do encourage people to do that because A1c isn't actually that perfect all the time. You know, I don't know how much you've discussed this before, but there are a lot of potential errors with the A1C values. I think the latest statistic was that it misses around, it's, it's about a 40 to 60% sensitivity and 80% specificity with the A1C, which means it misses a lot of positives that you might identify in like an oral glucose tolerance test or the CGM and it misses some false negatives too. So long story short to say that the A1C typically has flaws because it is based on the assumption that your red blood cells live for 90 days because it is making the calculation based off of how much glucose is stuck to that hemoglobin molecule for the past 90 days. But a lot of people have different red blood cell turnover rates. So sometimes they live longer and sometimes they live shorter. And that might skew that A1C percentage either a little high or a little low. You know, if your A1C is 10%, your glucose is high, you know, hard stop. But if your A1C is 5.5% and you calculated it with the CGM as more closer to 5.4%, that deviation could actually be, you know, meaningful to you and probably closer to accurate on the CGM, assuming that you are kind of checking in on the calibration there. That's awesome. So basically, especially if you've had historically a lot of HbA1c tests, this would be a great way to know if, and again, I understand that factors possibly could change, but it, it could be a good way to know when you get your future HbA1c data, if it tends to skew one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. How do you feel about fructosamine? Fructosamine is interesting. So it doesn't have as many flaws as the A1C. It's essentially, you know, it's it's capturing your glucose over the last two weeks as opposed to be three months. And it's more reliable if your red blood cell turnover is abnormal. So outside of that 90 days. So in situations like pregnancy, they, you know, if we're concerned about glucose levels, they'll more likely to use fructosamine rather than A1C because red blood cell turnover is all kinds of crazy when you're pregnant. So it's more reliable in that sense. So if you have something like a known issue with your red blood cells, like there are some genetic conditions where your turnover rate is different, then fructosamine is going to be a much more useful metric for you. Okay, awesome. And maybe now I'll share my my HbA1C CGM story. I've shared it quite a few times on this show. It just it's just so shocking to me, this experience I had, and it further drove home my obsession with CGMs. So I've historically, you know, I've worn a CGM a lot. The diet I've been following for quite a while now is intermittent fasting. I do one meal a day, and at night I eat huge amounts of lean protein, lots of fruit, cucumbers. So it's high protein. It's low fat and that I don't add any fats. It's just lean protein and then tons of fruit. So a pretty big carb load. 
And so I've, whenever I've worn CGMs in the past, I am always really curious to monitor that spike from that massive fruit intake. And it's, I'm usually always like good, like doesn't normally go above. Well, it depends. In the past, it would go up to like 130-ish, a little or higher, sometimes even 140. But then with some life, with some lifestyle changes, like taking my berberine supplement that I make, it actually was going down. It wouldn't really go above 120. Point being, also historically, my HbA1c has been usually around five. Yeah, usually around five. So I made one change to my eating pattern. I made that change for about a month. And I kind of intuitively felt like it was probably a problem, but I wasn't wearing a CGM and I was like, it's fine. Like, it's all good. And then I went and got my blood tests and my HP1C had gone up to 5.8 in a month. I like freaked out. I was like, like, what is happening? It's a big jump. Yeah. I know. So I immediately stopped what I was doing, which what I had been doing. And I find this so interesting. I hadn't changed any... I had not changed the amount of food I'd eaten. I was eating the same foods, but I had started heating my fruit because normally I eat the fruit frozen. And I realized that when you heat it, it kind of made it taste like dessert, like pie. So I was just heating the fruit. That's the only change, same amount of fruit. And so I stopped doing that completely, went cold turkey, uh, went back, no pun intended, because I literally started eating it frozen again and started wearing a CGM. A month later, it was down to 4.9 again. So it was crazy. And people keep asking, have you tested the heated fruit with a CGM? So friends, so, so I need to, because basically what happened was I was so freaked out by that. I immediately put on a CGM and I immediately stopped cooking the fruit. And so I I was like too scared to, to cook the fruit at all. So, um, I do now that I'm back, (laughs) now that we're back to, to normal, I need to do a round with a CGM and and just have one night. I also don't want to like bring back that habit though, because like, (laughs) You know, I don't think I will. Like, it's been so eye-opening. So I don't know, just stories like that. That's fascinating. I have a similar, well, not a similar as in it's it's different, but I had my A1C creep up, but my diet was exactly the same. And I put a CGM on and my average glucose was higher. I was like, oh, the data is right. What is going on? And what I realized and, you know, tested this, got it back down. But what I realized is, so I live in Phoenix, Arizona. And it gets nice and nice and toasty here in the summer. It gets really hot. And so in the summer, I stopped going on walks throughout the day, pretty much, because you're you're like melt when you go outside. And so I was just really like I was still going to the gym. I was still, you know, doing intense workouts, but I wasn't moving at all in between. My step count had basically plummeted to nothing. And it caused kind of my average glucose to creep up a little bit and my A1C to creep up a little bit. I just wasn't really kind of getting back down into those normal levels. Um, it was just a lot more sedentary throughout the day and kind of baking that back in, finding ways to move when it was still hot, but, you know, doing, just being more mindful and intentional about finding ways to move if I wasn't going outside, kind of brought it back down into normal, but very interesting too. I love that so much. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of like you're like a detective, like his magnifying glass. It really helps you helps you find what's going on. I'm curious with the app, does it have, okay, because for friends, the app has so much data and information in it. Does it have anything making comparisons for the history of your 
you know, different sensors that you've done as far as how it correlates to time of year? Yeah. So we have kind of an insights tab where you have all of your, your nerdy analytics and statistics all about your glucose data. So that's going to show you, you know, your average, that's going to show you your peak, it's going to show you your glycemic variability. And then you can also compare it to previous time ranges. So you could look at what, you know, if you want to, if you just finished a 14 days and let's say the first seven days you did your normal routine and the second seven days you, you switch things up, you could compare the current seven days to the previous seven days, or you could compare, you know, the current month to a previous month. And right now what we just have is kind of set where it's like the last three months as a compared to the three months before that. But what we're working on that will be coming soon is more flexible comparison ranges where you could pick like this exact date range compared to this exact date range. So that'll be coming soon. Awesome. If I were to theorize or hypothesize about mine, I would think that mine is consistently lower in the winter because of the cold exposure. Have you seen any trends with people or with Nutrisense with the data and the app about weather or yeah, weather? Yeah, we do. We, we tend to see higher values in the summer for multiple reasons, I think. One is hydration tends to be more of an issue in the summer. The other is that people tend to eat higher carbohydrate in the summer than the winter. You know, you've got like all the fruit is in season, which is great. Like I'm not anti-fruit. It sounds like you're not either, but it, you know, it can be easy to get carried away sometimes, especially if you're not mindful about kind of set meal times. So people, I think, tend to eat a little, little differently in the summer and then, yeah, the hydration thing. So on average, but at the same time, we do see that the highest glucose values tend to be around the holidays, which tend to be more stacked in the winter. So don't let the holidays deviate you from your goals. I believe that. I've also been very impressed with the app, just again, how much data there is and the features. Like I was wanting to, with those cryo spikes, once I realized that I was fairly certain they were not real, (laughs) that they were um, just from it being cold. I asked in the app how to get rid of them. And basically you you can go in and you can actually remove a data point. So that was pretty helpful. So we got quite a few questions because I think people, people are just a little bit overwhelmed by the idea of interpreting all this data. So I'll read a few of the questions. Marla says, if I'm having to pay out of pocket, what is the best as far as affordable and easy to understand? I'm worried I'll pay for it and have no idea what all of the information means or how to use the data to help myself. Nancy said, I have a CGM, but I'm finding it hard to interpret and make use of my readings. Where can I go for support? Are there Facebook groups or functional medicine professionals who can make sense of patterns? Okay, so people who are overwhelmed about, actually, I'll read this one. And then also, also Nancy said, same Nancy, she said that she's not been able to discover any patterns or behaviors impacting her glucose readings. As a low carb eater, she says that her swings have nothing to do with food, but maybe it's exercise, sleep, stress, or other inflammation or illness. So people who are overwhelmed by the idea of interpreting this data, how can Nutrisense help them? Sure. So I'll talk kind of at a high level of how to think about interpreting your data and then specifically, you know, what we do at NutriSense to help with that. Because, you know, maybe you have a sensor and you're not going to use NutriSense. And again, I want you to make the most of the CGM data, whether you're using NutriSense or not, because as we both believe, it's so powerful. So if you're just looking at the data, you have no idea what to make sense of. I would really think about it in three categories. 
One is what is my glucose doing in the fasted state? We really want our glucose levels to be below 90 when we're fasted, ideally closer to that in the 70s, 80s. I mean, it's okay to be in the 60s or even lower if you're not having any hypoglycemic events. So many people who are really low carb or doing a lot of fasting and entering ketogenesis will be in kind of those lower values. So one thing to look at is what's happening when you're fasted. A little bit of fluctuation during that fasted state is totally normal, but you will probably see deviations from day to day, and you want to look at that. So let's say, you know, overnight, your glucose values were in the 70s today, but the night before they were 110. So looking at what did I do differently, you know, that day versus this day. The second thing you want to look at are those average glucose values, as we mentioned, really keeping them below 105. You might have good fasted glucose values and never be spiking too high, but your average might be always a little too high. Kind of what's happening overall, that 24-hour view. And then the third component you really want to drill into is what's happening when you eat or when is your glucose spiking. And so for a non-diabetic, we really want to keep glucose below 140 as that upper threshold. And we want our bodies to be able to recover from a glucose spike and come back down to like pre-meal glucose values within usually, you know, three hours or so of eating. If you're doing an eating style kind of like yours where you're eating one meal a day and it's a much higher volume of food, sometimes it might take maybe closer to four hours and that would be expected because it's more food, but it's going to be counterbalanced by the point that the rest of the day is very, very low and you're not having kind of those peaks and valleys throughout the day. Okay, that you answered my question. I was going to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so those are kind of really what to drill into if you're not sure. And then with the NutriSense app specifically, there's two types of people. You know, there's the person who's like, I want to know if this is good or bad. Like, am I okay? And then there's the other person that's like downloading their data and doing like Excel models and like logarithm uh, mathematic equations to know every deviation, like the really, you know, nerdy data people. And so if you really just kind of want to get a general idea, we give you a daily glucose score that takes all of the most important components and kind of scores your day on a one to 10 scale so that you can get a really quick at a glance idea of how your glucose values looked that day. And we do the same with meals. So we give a meal score. So if you log a meal in the app, you'll also get a score in that two-hour window after you've eaten of how your glucose response was to the meal. And then as I mentioned, we have a more detailed view of all of the analytics on a separate tab where you can kind of see the trends. You can see, you know, it'll tell you that your fast, you know, your uh, peak glucose is trending 10% higher this week than last week. I mean, it can kind of help you drill down. And the final thing that we do at NutriSense is we also provide you access to a dietitian. And this is a dietitian who has seen a lot of other glucose data, who is well-versed in all of the various dietary and lifestyle strategies to help support good glucose values. And if you have any questions, like you're like, why is my glucose doing this? What does this mean? Those are perfect questions to send over to our dietitians. They're there for as much or as little support as you might like. Some people message their dietitian all day, every day, and some people, you know, use them very minimally. So they're kind of there to help you navigate both interpreting the data and also then creating ideas on how to improve the data or what to do differently, Um, you know, creating goals, holding yourself accountable, so to speak. I love it so much. Yeah, I've been 
personally highly impressed with the dialogue with the dietitians. I personally don't use it as much. Like I more just go on my own and interpret it, but I've had a lot of friends use it and have told me that their favorite part of the app was that access, like being able to talk to somebody almost in real time. Like you can, you know, log into the app and chat and um, they help you kind of ascertain what's going on and how you might make changes to address it. Do you have thoughts? This is just my question. I think I asked you this on the other show, but some people doing low carb diets will have higher resting blood sugar levels. And actually I'm having Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on the show pretty soon. And in her new book called Forever Strong, she actually talks about this, how she typically sees higher blood sugar levels and people on lower carb diets, but she doesn't think it's an issue. What are your thoughts on that? And does the body know or care if the blood sugar is coming from food versus like gluconeogenesis in the liver? Yeah, it's a great question. It is. So it is a phenomenon that we do see typically when people are following very low carbohydrate diet for an extended period of time. So we usually don't start to see this happen unless someone's been you know, doing it for at least a year. And really what's happening here is a, is a, you know, adaptation. The body is realizing that it's not getting a lot of glucose from food. So it kind of raises glucose levels a little bit endogenously on its own to make sure that some of these more glucose sensitive organs have that steady stream of glucose available. So usually what we'll see is that fasted glucose values are a little bit higher. Sometimes they might even be, you know, in the high 90s, close to 100, but their glucose levels are really stable throughout the day. There's basically no variability, no ups and downs, no spikes. And so for me, there's very little research out there to actually pinpoint whether this is a good or a bad thing. But my interpretation of this is that it's most likely perfectly fine. But the things that you would want to double check is first to make sure that your, you know, if you get a fasted insulin level, that it is also low. Because for this, we would expect insulin to be low. If it's high, then that means you have kind of an energy over over-availability of energy if insulin is high and glucose is high. So insulin should be low in this instance. And we still want to make sure that your average glucose values aren't creeping up above that 105 range. So if you're starting to see average glucose values at 110, 115, that's when I start to get a little bit concerned that maybe it's too high because at that point you you still are having a lot of glucose in circulation that's going to lead to higher you know, glycation events and that can potentially have negative downstream effects. I have very, very rarely seen that average glucose gets that high in that instance though. So those would be the two kind of parameters I would make sure are still okay. Awesome. And is insulin also an interstitial fluid? Like, is there the potential of an insulin monitor, continuous insulin monitor? You know, there's talks that maybe one day it'll be possible. It's much more complicated because even the lab draw to get, you know, we, we don't even have a finger prick insulin because it's a lot different to measure it than glucose is. You know, glucose is a much more simple metabolite where insulin is a hormone. I have heard that it, it's possible and it might one day happen, but I would say it's it's not in the very near future, at least. I got really excited. I didn't realize that there was an HbA1c that you could, like, blood glucometer that you could do at home. Which is really interesting, yeah. For listeners, I had James Clement on my other show. He wrote a book called The Switch. And there, oh, I totally forgot about this. I, there was one time where I got some lab work back and my HbA1c was 
high a little bit and I was telling him about it and he sent me one in the mail. I was so happy. I was like, and I had no idea that they existed. I pulled it out when I had that, that 5.8 and it was a little bit sad, but we fixed it. So yeah, actually Caroline wanted to know, is it more important to track insulin than blood glucose? As I've heard on some podcasts. I think insulin is incredibly valuable. If a day comes where we get the 24-7 insulin view, it's going to be a game changer. But right now, what's mostly practical at this point in time is to be able to get a fasted insulin level, which I really do recommend people do, you know, just to kind of check that that's, that's good. If you are doing the CGM and your glucose readings are in good place, I'm going to put money on the fact that your fasted insulin levels are also good. But what is really useful is kind of that postprandial or 24-7 view of insulin, but it's, it's not really practical to do that for most people at this point in time because you would need to like convince somebody to every once in a while in like very more expensive concierge, like medical clinics, they'll do the oral glucose tolerance test with both glucose and insulin. So for that, you know, you, you drink a bunch of sugar and you sit there for two or three hours and they draw your blood at every like 20, 30 minutes. And that's pretty interesting. But again, that's not practical for most people. So at this point, I would say our best combination is to do that fast insulin once a year with your regular lab panel and do the CGM every once in a while. Hi friends. As you guys know, I'm a little bit obsessed with the importance of reducing our exposure to environmental toxins. Did you know there is a hidden culprit that is around us everywhere that the International Agency for Research on Cancer, also known as the IARC, classifies as group 2B carcinogens? This means they are possibly carcinogenic to humans. And while the science is still evolving, multiple studies have linked high levels of this to a range of health issues. I'm talking about EMFs, electromagnetic fields, radiation. EMFs are emitted from so many things today. Our smartphones, our Wi-Fi, our smart devices in our homes. In fact, if you have an iPhone and you go into the legal section, it will actually recommend that you don't use it like a normal phone and hold it to your head and instead use speakerphone to reduce exposure to potentially harmful EMFs. Why does the IARC consider EMFs group 2B? That was based in part on increased risk of brain cancer associated with wireless phones. A 2000 analysis of multiple studies showed that children living in homes with very high EMF levels had a slightly increased risk of leukemia. Multiple studies have also found reproductive effects. A 2008 study suggested that using mobile phones may decrease semen quality in men by decreasing sperm count, motility, viability, and morphology. There are also neurological effects. If you get headaches, please stop using the AirPods. Please reduce your EMF exposure. Some studies have speculated that EMFs could influence brain activity and impact sleep and even affect EEG patterns during the awake state. One study found that workers exposed to EMFs showed altered heart rate variability, suggesting an influence on the autonomic nervous system. And a lot of individuals may be particularly sensitive to EMFs and experience headaches, fatigue, stress, and sleep disturbances. That's why I am so excited to be launching a line of EMF blocking products to help protect you. I'm starting with one of the easiest, most profound changes you can take in your daily life, and that is by not using your phone like a normal phone and not wearing AirPods. Friends, take out the AirPods. I shudder. These EMFs literally affect the calcium channels of our cells. You do not want that right by your brain. My Avalon X, powered by SYB, is going to be an incredible line of EMF blocking products. We're launching with air tubes, 
That is EMF-free headphones that you can use with your phone. They have all the normal features of normal headphones, so you can do calls, speak on them, play music, skip ahead, adjust volume, all the things. Well, all the things except EMF exposure. And I am beyond thrilled because we are launching in two of my favorite colors, black and rose gold. Get on my email list so that you don't miss that. That is at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. We'll be doing an amazing launch special, so you don't want to miss that. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list so that you don't miss the exclusive discount for my air tubes. They will make incredible gifts for both yourself and others. melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. You can also use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide from my fantastic partner, Shield Your Body. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash shield your body and use the coupon code melanieavalon. They have so many EMF blocks products. So definitely check them out. Awesome. Well, speaking of postprandial, so earlier you were saying the two things that like the two main things to look for would be swings. And then that, that postprandial blood sugar spike after your meal, Mary Jane wanted to know besides big spikes or big drops in blood sugar, what are other patterns of concern to look out for? Of course, you know, the big drops and the big spikes. The other is if you see like a really slow, gradual increase in your glucose and it takes a really long time for it to come back down. So we'll typically see this type of pattern in either individuals who are insulin resistant or if you could be metabolically healthy and you have this pattern to something that's really high fat, really high carb. So I'm talking like, uh, you know, cheeseburger with French fries and a milkshake. That kind of meal, even in a metabolically healthy person, is going to have your glucose rise really slowly. You're probably not going to see a sharp increase because there's so much fat that's slowing the digestion down. So three hours later, you might see the glucose peak, and then you might not see it come back down for eight hours. That's even if you don't ever reach 140, which you probably won't. A lot of people look at that and they're like, oh, maybe that meal wasn't so bad because my glucose never went above 120. But if you see the curve, it took, you know, eight hours for your body to really kind of process all of that. And you were probably hungry like three hours later, though. So then sometimes people are eating again while they're still kind of coming back down. So a slow return back to baseline is also something you want to look at. That big dip, you know, the reactive hypoglycemia is another thing. And then just those big like swings, even if you're never reaching 130, 140, if you're having a lot of that variability, so that up and down momentum, that's kind of a pattern we want to monitor. And there's actually research to show that higher glycemic variability creates more oxidative stress and inflammation than sustained stable high glucose levels which is really interesting. Yeah. So those big swings are are potentially worse than if your glucose was just high, but stable. So very interesting. And is that with the same area under the curve total blood glucose between those two situations or? Yeah. So between the two, you could, you could assume that they're having potentially the same average glucose. So, but one is high and flat, and then one is, you know, has lows and highs, but is up and down that up and down, even if it's the same average glucose is, is a lot more detrimental to our health. 
Wow, that is that's really interesting. And Margaret wants to know, speaking of a stable blood sugar level, she says if my blood glucose is shown to be relatively stable with no major spikes with a CGM, what is the next step to assess if weight loss is the goal? So where do we go from there if it is stable? Yeah, if it is stable, that's great. We also want to make sure, you know, it's in kind of that optimal fasted range. So for some people, maybe it's stable, but it's it's in, you know, it's resting at 110 or so. So you really want to look at what it looks like in that fasted state and assess that. And then if all of that looks good, then there might be other things at play outside of glucose that might be hindering your weight loss. So that's where it's important to know that glucose is really insightful. Oh, and that was a point I was going to make when we were talking about interpreting the glucose values of, you know, sometimes you said that somebody said, their diet never causes their spike, but sometimes it's stress or something else. The really useful thing about glucose is not only does it fluctuate in response to our diet, but it also fluctuates in response to our level of activity. In my example, my glucose was creeping up because I was becoming more sedentary, but it also responds to stress, both psychological stress, but also like physical stressors, like being sick or, you know, being in a high pollution area, things that cause our body to be put in that stress state. And then it also responds to our sleep quality and quantity. So it gives us this good overall view of our health and where to kind of pinpoint. But at the end of the day, it's not the only metric that matters. So sometimes we can get glucose in a really good spot and maybe we still need to address other things that aren't reflected in your glucose values to kind of help take weight loss to the next level. And of course, you know, that that might end up being really personalized depending on the person. But I would say a majority of the time, if getting your good your glucose values to a good place will really accelerate weight loss for most people because it kind of helps to unlock some of that more fat burning state but it also again helps people be consistent with the habits that they want to do it holds people accountable more and we know when when we're consistent and we're doing the things that we no work for us, that's when we really start to see results. So that tends to be one of the biggest benefits for long-term weight loss and keeping the weight off is that accountability element. I cannot agree more. And because we get asked, I especially get asked all the time, I'll have a lot of new listeners to, you know, both this show, my other show and everything. And, you know, there's so many like ways to go when you finally fall into this health world. And I actually got a message on Instagram, a DM yesterday, I think, and she said that she just found me and she found all my stuff and like where to start. And then she she actually said in the message, she said, would a CGM be the best place to start? And I was like, actually, yeah, that's like one of the, that's like one of the best ways because you just immediately can see. You're going to get that view into the most important elements. Yeah. And it's not like you said, it's not just food. It's so many other things beyond that. Okay. Two other really quick questions about the data specifically. So Jill said that this is interesting. She said she heard some discussion of the dawn phenomenon and she heard that it's like a report card of yesterday's activity. How true is this? And then she says CGMs are such a great way to see the detailed data. Have you heard that before? I haven't. Um, I would, I would say that overnight glucose values and those morning fasted glucose values are indeed a report card for the day before. But I would separate that from the dawn phenomenon. So I, the dawn phenomenon is a very natural response our body has, where we tend to have a little bit of a glucose spike 
I wouldn't even call it a spike, a glucose rise when we wake up. I describe it as our body's natural alarm clock. You wake up and you kind of have a surge of hormones that help wake you up, you know, get you going for the day. And typically that comes with a little release of glucose value or of glucose levels. And then usually it comes right back down. So for like a normal person, this might be a rise of 10-ish points. And then within an hour, it's back down to kind of baseline values. And this is really normal. What you'll see with a diabetic is that because their body is no longer insulin sensitive, they have the same dawn phenomenon response, except their glucose rises maybe 50 points and it stays high. It never goes back down. So this phenomenon was really created in response to looking at diabetics' glucose values because this is a problem for them. They have really high morning glucose values despite doing nothing differently, basically. But in healthy people, we see a really minor one and it's not a big deal. But when you're looking at your fasted glucose values and your overnight glucose values, really what you what it's typically reflecting is what you did the day before. So if you had, you know, maybe a different meal than normal, maybe you had like a dessert with your dinner the night before and you don't normally do that, you'll probably see that reflected in those morning values the next day. Let's say you had a couple more glasses of alcohol than you normally do, you'll probably see that the next day. And the other main reason that we might see fasted glucose levels drive up, well, also sleep quality. So I guess that's kind of reflected from the previous day. But another big one is just stress levels. So if we're feeling like nothing has changed in our routine, but our fasted glucose levels are creeping up, it's typically stress because that surge of cortisol and that stress response is telling your liver to dump more glucose. And so we're see those glucose values rise despite, you know, no change in, you know, activity levels or dietary levels, then we can usually pinpoint that to stress. Gotcha. Yeah. We hear the word stress and it can seem very vague and, you know, like, of course, everybody's stressed, but you know, it literally can have this hormonal effect that is raising our levels. So as far as seeing the spikes, so Zena says, what to do with the information? Does that mean cut the food out completely if it spikes? Great question, because the answer is no, not always, especially if it's like a nutrient-dense, healthy food. So let's say, let's take the example of, I mean, your example is great. Let's say that like you're, you're eating more like cooked fruit and you're having a big glucose spike and you're like, what should I do with this? Again, you can troubleshoot this yourself, but this would be a great question if you are working at NutriSense to ask your dietitian and we'll experiment with that. So maybe, you know, the suggestion might be to try it in its whole form, which happens a lot. So an example might be somebody who's drinking a smoothie version of that fruit or they're juicing their fruit. So then we might recommend to eat, just eat the whole fruit and see how that goes. Another really useful tip is typically to make sure you've eaten protein and some you know, fiber, but typically protein is the best in this situation to eat some protein first and then the fruit, and you'll likely see your glucose response improve. Another strategy is to make sure you're getting movement in to help kind of mitigate some of that response. So those are all helpful things to try if it's a food that we believe is healthy, nutrient-dense, and also a food that you really enjoy. So if you're like, no, this is my favorite food ever, I don't want to get rid of it, usually we can find a way to kind of make it work. But if it's something like, you know, 
let's say you had a candy bar and you had a glucose spike, like we could probably mitigate it a little bit, but it's also not good for you, not nutrient dense, not adding any value. So most likely, yes, we would like to just remove that from, from that routine. But for a lot of things, there is actually, you know, quite a bit we can do. And going back to something you were saying, or we were both talking about earlier about the valuable information in the moment, but then also how you remember it. I still, cause I think there's been one time when I was wearing a CGM, when I ate really processed food, it was, it was still paleo, but it was like this, like it, it was still gluten-free and all the things, but it had a lot of like natural sugar in it. I don't know why. I think I had like a random craving for cereal. And so I got one of those like gluten-free cereal things and I ate a lot of it. It spiked so high on my CGM and that haunts me to this day. (laughs) Like, I'm like, I know now like what that's actually doing to me. And, you know, maybe there's a time and place where, you know, I'll be in a situation and it's my birthday and I, in the cost benefit of life, like it's worth it in that moment. And I think you can do that and you can still have the agency and the knowledge. And I think it's just about taking responsibility for your yourself and knowing what's valuable. Yeah. Mindful of those trade-offs. When you do know that information, you're geared with it, then you can make the really intentional decisions. It's not just like, oh, I'm just eating this because it's in front of me. Like, you know, a lot of times we'll have people who work in offices where there's always some sort of treat for somebody's birthday. You know, there's cupcakes, there's donuts, there's whatever. And when before maybe you would mindlessly like have one, now it's like, I know what that does and I'm only going to do it if it's really truly worth it. So it's like making sure it's worth it because life is worth living and we don't have to be perfect all of the time. But I think it's about being geared with the information and then really like kind of weighing the pros and cons and making a decision that feels right for you. I cannot agree more. None of the questions today, I don't think mentioned it, but people have said before that they're hesitant to get one because they just, you know, don't want to know. Basically, I just find it so eye-opening and empowering so that you can really make the decisions the majority of the time that will best suit your health. And then, you know, have those moments where if you do choose to do something that you know might not look the best on your CGM, at least you're aware and it's in the context of the rest of the time when you can be taking more agency. So as far as getting a CGM, we did have questions about getting one and and the price like so Wendy wanted to know why are they so expensive and why would you need one if you have no need for one although I think we <laughs> I think we've talked a lot about that second part Joy wants to know when will they become more affordable Jackie wants to know what is the initial cost of the CGM and the continuing cost for supplies and the membership is it worth it if you're not diabetic and at a normal BMI could it be a benefit for a healthy senior citizen How does the NutriSense program work as far as people getting a CGM and the affordability and the pricing and the access? How does that all work? And we do have a code for listeners that we can share as well. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of just how it works, you'll just, you would sign up on our website and you fill out a quick health questionnaire and you pick which plan you want to do. So I'll walk through that. But then you... You don't have to do anything else. So we take care of all of, you know, the getting the devices, shipping them to your doors. They would come based off of the subscription you choose. They would come two each month. And then you have lifetime access to the app and your data. So um, you put the sensors on at home, you know, you use the app and then you chat with the dietitian through the app as well. And then, you know, you don't have to do anything. And our options, we have that month to month, no commitment, like I mentioned. So you could do just one month. That's the short 
shortest time period. And we have all the way up to a 12-month commitment. And those range from, you know, the the month to month is the most expensive. It's $350. And then the 12-month is the cheapest, and it's $199 a month. And then we have plans that vary in between. And why it's so expensive, you know, we we would also love for it to be cheaper. And my goal as well is to have every single person have them at least, you know, be able to use it at least once and get that data. But the hardware right now is still just costly. The devices themselves are just more expensive, but they have already trended down in cost since they've been available over the last 10 years or so. So, 10 years ago, they were hundreds of dollars a piece, and now they're you know, significantly less than that. So we do anticipate that with more demand, they'll continue to drive down prices. And we also anticipate that each sensor will continue to be able to last longer, which helps as well. You know, They used to only last, the very first version of these sensors only lasted three days, and now they last 14. So they will get you know, cheaper, they'll last longer, they'll be smaller, and And they'll just continue to get better over time and we'll be able to drive down those prices. We will be rolling out within the next few months, actually, the kind of membership bring your own sensor option. So this will be a one-time fee. And then if you have sensors of your own, you can use our app and, you know, access all of that information as well. Awesome. And for listeners, they can actually go to nutrisense.io slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast and that will get you $30 off as well. So we are super, super grateful for that. Well, this has been so amazing. I cannot thank you enough, Kara, for everything that you were doing with this company and making this accessible to people. Just I'll just share one last quick anecdote. I had my own experience, something I really love testing on the CGM was I have a, my Avalonix supplement line and I was historically taking berberine for blood sugar control. I don't want to say so much control as I guess blood sugar optimization. In any case, I, I honestly thought when I made my version that I wouldn't see any difference, but when I did, I made my own version of it and I saw like massive changes on my CGM as far as the effect that it had on my postprandial spike. And that was really exciting. And then I heard that from people as well. And that's something that I, I honestly never, I just never could know if I, if I didn't have the CGM. So it's just been for me personally, so eye opening in so many ways with, with that, with my daily diet, with the HbA1c issue, with so many things. And I hear testimonials from people all the time And so, like I said, I I cannot recommend enough that people get one of these and I can't thank you enough for making it so, so accessible and so easy to interpret and understand. And it's just awesome. You're changing the world literally. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, appreciate your support. And yeah, our goal is is really just to kind of help people take control of their health and, and learn this information and really just better themselves with, which ends up bettering, you know, everyone else as well. So I'm going to have to check out your supplement as well. I'd be super curious to try it. It sounds awesome. Oh, I will send it to you. Most definitely. That would be great. That'd be so fun. It's so exciting because I had that experience and then so many people have told me that as well. They would like check it on CGMs. I was like, oh, this is fabulous. If you're open to it, I'd love to have you back more regularly because this is just so important and wonderful. And I I can't wait to air this. I'm so excited. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kara. And I will talk to you very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Melanie. 
Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.